this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good morning, Dr. Crone. For our listeners, can you introduce yourself and give a short background of your career and your current position? Thanks, Eric. Uh, my name is Irv Crone. I was uh, chair of surgery at the University of Virginia for quite some time. Before that, I was division chief of thoracic and cardiovascular surgery. I'm a practicing cardiac surgeon. My present role is uh, senior associate vice president for health affairs at the University of Arizona. I've been fortunate enough to have a very large clinical practice and run a well-funded research laboratory. I've had continuous funding for a training grant for the last 20 years and continuous funding for my research from the NIH for over 25 years. I uh, really believe in the concept of the clinical investigator and I truly enjoy uh, training future clinical investigators. Great, thank you. Uh, now I was uh, gonna mention briefly uh, the number of years that you've had NIH funding which makes you quite the perfect person to talk to about doing research, being a certain scientist, and writing a manuscript. If you could estimate, how many publications would you say you have had over the years? Well, my colleagues and I have had over 500 peer-reviewed publications. There are also multiple other book chapters and editorials and so on. Now, we've been asked today to talk about, uh, quote-unquote, how to write a manuscript, um, but I think we should expand upon that theme uh, and, and talk about how to conduct research that will get published, how to conduct meaningful research. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, can you talk to me a little bit about this concept of taking an idea from the bedside to the bench and then back to the bedside again? So why in the world do we do research at all? Why do we do investigation? What's that all about? Well, it turns out, you know, as a physician and particularly as a surgeon, our focus is great and doing great care for our patients as our primary focus. We teach so we can develop the next generation to do great care for patients. More importantly, we do research because that's what allows us to give better care for our patients. The point of research is to do that in an organized fashion. When you find an answer, you can make a difference for the patients you're looking after. And I think that's, that's the cool part of what we get to do. People talk about research like it's a separate deal. The truth of the matter is, is that I'm always thinking about what I could do better in the operating room or taking care of my patients or, or whatever. And that's why I do research. So my research time is when I'm taking care of patients. I'm thinking about how could I have done things better. And that's where the ideas come from. When you have an idea, it's not just do something different or, you know, everything's based on your last worst or best case. Rather, it's saying, okay, got this concept. How can we prove it or unprove it? And that's what research is about. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I think uh, those of us have had, that have had the luxury uh, to train under you have learned that exact concept in that uh, they're not two distinct entities, the clinical care and the research, but actually they work very nicely when you look at them as one and use one in order to drive what you're doing in the other. So when you get started for, say, a, a new investigator, or a young faculty member, or a resident, or a trainee. How do you go about generating your research ideas? Any tips for listeners on, on kind of where to get started when they want to embark on a research career? So the you know, top three enter, answers for all that is mentorship, mentorship, mentorship. I mean, the concept is, is that as a you know, young faculty or, or as a resident coming into a research arena, 
you may have to make sure you have decent mentors and, and the mentor has to be somebody who are established investigators, number one, but they have to have enough time that your success is their success. I think that's absolutely critical. The ideas shouldn't be imposed on you. You know, they should be something of interest. I, I remember when I was first getting started, I was offered this concept by one of, one of the people who uh, I would reported to who wanted me to study cardiac lymphatics. Well, God knows that's the last thing I'd want to do on Earth. And I certainly wouldn't have done any research. And I think, I think people who, who get involved in areas just because they've been told to do that just aren't successful. It's not much fun. Whereas if you find something exciting, that's fun. So for me, in my basic research, it was all based on uh, a single case. I, I started a lung transplant program at the University of Virginia. We, uh, I, we'd been mentored by Alec Patterson and a few others uh, on how to get going. First few cases went great, and then the fifth case was a young, healthy person with a local donor, and, and the patient developed uh, reperfusion pulmonary edema and barely survived. And that one case got me interested in the whole idea of how to prevent reperfusion injury and treat it and led into multiple investigations. And, and the point is we're, we're still working on it. And I think it's better to, to, in those terms. When you have an idea, then you'd have to design what the concept, you know, what do you want to do? And it's important to design experiments such that either answer that you get is okay. Because if you have something that it doesn't work, that you've lost one or two or five years of research, then you're going to be biased, I would say, to try to prove something that's just not there. And it's research. It's uh, You don't know what the answer is. That's what's the cool part about it. You, you figure it out and do it. Make sure it's well designed. Make sure that you have a concept that's of interest to you. Make sure you have the proper team. And uh, then away you go. Now, uh, kind of to expand upon that, as you're working through your experiments, doing your data analysis, how do you know when you're ready to kind of put everything together for prime time, put it together for a manuscript, and actually go ahead and submit it to a journal for publication? Well, I, I think the point is, is that uh, you're never going to have it as complete enough. That's where people get in trouble. You know, the point is, is you have something that's a significant contribution that you can make. Our, our research area, we tend to try to send things, focus on meetings, and we work around meetings for our manuscripts. And it's, it's critically important that you, once you complete a project, you start writing it up. The reason is, is, is that if you let it go, you know, there, there's this thrill of the discovery. That's awesome. That's really fun. You know, it's great when an Eric Charles comes and says, man, we got this really cool stuff. We've got to deal with it. If you don't write it up at that moment in time, it won't happen. It's, you know, it's particularly true when you're working with fellows in a research lab who go out into in their clinical activities just got to be done at the time. Fortunately, meetings help push you to do that because you usually have to submit a manuscript with the meeting. So I would say you've made a unique discovery. That's when you write you write it up. It doesn't have to be, you know, cure of cancer or meeting of life. The point is, is that is you have a piece of data that's worth putting together and, and you do. You've stressed you know, that point exactly to us and making sure that we stay on top of putting the manuscript itself together not just the abstract for meeting submission and not waiting until you know if the abstract's been accepted for presentation at the meeting. Because if you've got a good idea and you've got some good results, it's going to go somewhere. So you might as well get that manuscript uh, together. In terms of meetings for our listeners either interested in or are in cardiothoracic surgery, uh, any recommendation on 
meetings they should be targeting or uh, meetings to consider for submitting their work? Well, I think any of the national meetings are, are you know, really important and really fun. But, you know, basically, if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, you want to, you know, have your peers understand what you're doing. So we've tended to focus basically on, you know, four meetings, the uh, AATS, STS, Southern Thoracic, and, and American Heart. And uh, those, are, those are the meetings we have tended to, uh, to go with. So the next question I have is, if you conduct research, uh, you put together some data, you're writing your manuscript, and you're not going to submit to a meeting for presentation, how do you go about selecting the right journal? Do you, do you always shoot high and then try to work your way back down? Uh, how do you find the right audience? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, So when we're doing basic research, we try to uh, alternate between a clinical journal as well in some of the basic journals like you know so areas in physiology and pharmacology and so on I think you know it's important to, to publish in both areas we as surgeons tend to spend more time on the clinical side and, and you need to have some recognition the interest on on which journals you know seem to be more widely read also helps you and a lot depends on how earth-shaking your, your work is so if you're doing a major randomized clinical trial you know, like we've done with the Cardiothoracic Surgical Network, then the New England Journal is a possibility. However, if you're doing something that, you know, it's a unique technical point, then I'd go to a basic thoracic journal and because that's where your audience is. Flipping the coin a little bit, as a reviewer, when you're reading a submitted manuscript, uh, are there certain things you're looking for? Are there certain, certain things you're hoping not to see? Uh, how do you decide on whether or not you recommend rejection, revisions, or acceptance? Well, that's a great question. And I review for a lot of journals, and uh, it's pretty clear early on. So if it's, you know, a case report's got to be really unique, something that's most unusual, once-in-a-lifetime kind of case. Otherwise, it's just not going to get accepted. If it's a uh, surgical technique, uh, again, if it's unique, it's going to be interesting. If it's just same old, same old, I've done 50 of these and so far so good, I'm not going to likely recommend it. However, if it's interesting yeah, and it's, it will likely uh, alter or fully change practice, then I'm all over that and, and I'd be very intrigued with it. If it's been, you know, basically been double peer review, that is accepted for a major meeting, then presented well, likely it'll be accepted because it's already been reviewed by, uh, by a program committee. And then, then basically there'll be some revisions likely, but usually it, it'd be of interest. Even if I disagree with what, uh, what the authors are suggesting, but it's a well-written manuscript and it's a thought changer, I'm, I'm all for it. And in those situations, it'd be proper to maybe have a commentary or an editorial because, because that's what's fun when you read articles. Uh, you know, there should be opposing viewpoints, you know. You know, for example, most of the things I taught about approaches to surgery, you know, when I did my residency are all different now. So obviously, the things we're teaching today are going to be different 20 odd years from now. Therefore, it's perfectly legitimate to have totally opposing viewpoints as long as they're well-based and well-researched. Another thing that will get you rejected is if you don't have the proper IRB approval or proper animal care committee approval. These are the basic things uh, of what you have to do. And finally, is it a well put together manuscript? And we'll talk a little bit about that 
but there's a way to do a manuscript a day, do a study. If it's disorganized and way too overreaching, then it's not worth publishing. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue. Why don't we comment on that? We can get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts real quick of, you know, putting together a manuscript. Some folks have advocated writing up the results section first. That way you know what data you have. Put the tables and figures together and then kind of work backwards from there. Either do the discussion next and then finish filling in the introduction and methods um, or vice versa. Do you advocate any certain technique? Do you think there's any important points uh, that folks should keep in mind when they're actually sitting down and putting putting pen to paper? Yeah, I, I think I think that's important. So I'm a believer that the first thing that needs to be put together, and this is typically an introduction, is your hypothesis. Also, you got to have a very you know you ought to have a catchy title, a title that's not you know maybe this, maybe that. But if you th- if you think something's worth writing up, then you ought to be definitive about it. So the hypothesis needs to be included, and it doesn't matter if your hypothesis is correct or incorrect point is you should start a study with a specific hypothesis. Second, I think the most important part after that is the methodology. Again, that's the part I read first when I read a, a paper, and that's what I hope the residents and fellows learn to read first after they spend time in the research laboratory. Again, even if someone disagrees with your methodology, you just got to be clear and straight up about it. The results come next, and discussion is absolutely the last thing, probably the least important aspect of what you write. I tend to write my, dis- you know, I have my discussion pretty well set in my mind before I start. I usually pull up the references I want to include at that point in time and then uh, use those to base my discussion. Discussion should not be totally encompassing. It just needs to be clear that you've considered multiple alternatives, what other people have written about the subject, and why uh, your results are, are unique and important. Yeah, and I think the point of hypothesis-driven uh, research is an, is a is a really is a really good one to focus on. I think a lot of times we get carried away with just having an objective or having an interesting topic that we were exploring, and like you said earlier, regardless of what the results are, uh, it'll be something that people will want to read or know about. Uh, but that being said, you've stressed for many years with us, it's really important to get a good grasp on on what work has been done similar to your work or similar to your question, but then generate a hypothesis and use that hypothesis to move forward with the rest of of the experiments generating the data. And I think that's important for our listeners to remember. In terms of balancing the different areas of research, residents, trainees, young faculty expected to do a lot You've got to be busy clinically, you may have educational responsibilities, and then you personally want to do research, but your organization is probably expecting some of it. What do you recommend in terms of division of labor in how much work you do personally versus getting folks on board to collaborate with or getting folks to help support you in your lab? Uh, any recommendations for how to build that up? Well, I think, I think your time management changes, you know, uh, as, as you move along. So at the very beginning, when you're gonna do research, you're gonna do a lot of it yourself. And I think every young investigator in particular needs to have a certain amount of first authored publications. I believe that someone who does the majority of the work should get, you know, be the first author. So, and we, we get that figured out in advance, long before you made your discovery. We make a determination, if you've done the majority of the work, you're gonna be the first author. That's the way it is. That gets rid of any issues ahead of time. It gets 
and and basically people have to do something to be included in the in the author chain but early on you should be doing much of the work and that's the point you're going to be working with mentors you're going to be doing you're going to spend some time and i believe early in your career at least two days a week doing research and it'll leave you two days to do clinical work and one day perhaps to see patients two days to do surgery one day to see patients in the office point is you can get it done that way you know no one's hardly going to be working operating five days a week it's mostly just doing other things there's only so many times you have to read your emails only so many times you got to have conversations point is focus so when you're doing research you should be doing research when you're seeing patients you should be seeing patients even though you're thinking about your research where you get in trouble is when you're trying to multitask and typically you don't do either very well and that's the way we've done it with our young investigators in, in the Department of Surgery at UVA. We have asked them to uh, to work with a scientific mentor, whether it's basic or translational, do their clinical work, and and focus on both. And we protect their time, and, and they have to protect their own time as well. Yeah, and I think you're uh, definitely somebody who's led by example in that arena. Uh, after spending uh, three years in your lab, you know, people always ask me, oh, you know, there's no way Dr. Crohn's at lab meeting every week. How often do you actually get to talk with him and, and go over your research? And people are amazed when I tell them he's there every week. It's a priority of yours, and that reflects down onto us and really, I think, makes the lab keep moving forward and keeps everyone on the same page. It's been great to have that example to learn from. A lot of us strive to be the true surgeon scientist, get basic science research going, get a lab off the ground, but we all know that takes a lot of time. As an early investigator, as a young investigator, it takes time to get funding, uh, get your lab started. So what do you recommend in terms of uh, dividing your uh, research time with doing clinical projects, doing translational projects? Should you focus at all on getting your basic science lab off the ground? Uh, how do you balance those three? Yeah, I, I think that uh, you know, basic science or you know, true translational science, like a clinical trial, it's a long project. They take a lot of time. and. And so you're not going to do as much of that kind of in that kind of work. I think it's always worthwhile to try, start presenting at meetings and talking some clinical studies. And uh, and you know, the truth is that's what most of what we end up doing. And, and you can use databases. Like in Virginia, we have uh, you know we have a statewide database that we use. You can use Medicare databases, or you can use essentially your own clinical volume. Everyone worries, well, I don't have 10,000 cases, how do I get started? But if you've done something uniquely for just a few cases, that's worth talking about. And it'll help you in terms of truly analyzing that data, really understanding it. And, and you know, it'll change your practice just looking at your own results. Nothing wrong with doing, doing that kind of thing. But the basics or true translational stuff should be done. The combination is what's going to help you. In terms of the question about getting funding, that's a whole different story. And uh, my belief is that you just can't go out and say, I'm going to do some research. That's not going to happen. So like what you've done, Eric, getting your PhD and, and working, you know, you have the background to do anything. So likely when you go into an academic situation, you're going to hopefully have excellent mentors and you will aim originally for a K award, which was not available when I was starting my research. I think it's a fantastic approach. For uh, NHLBI, it's a 50% commitment for clinicians, and they get that people who are clinicians needed to look after patients and so on. And then you were going to try to convert to an R01 because that is the coin of the realm. That's how you can really do research. For me, it took a long time. It took over 10 years to get my first R01. First few uh, were badly rejected, and they should have been. They were terrible. 
but you learn, you work with mentors, and uh, you get funding from American Heart, you know, some local funding. There's a, there are a lot of places to get stuff going, but persistence is everything. You just have to keep going at it, and then what you do, uh, it works, and then you gotta continue. So you never just say, I got my grant, I'm done. You're always writing grants, you're always trying to go for more, and, uh, and, and ideally, you're gonna be one step ahead each time. All right, just a last uh, last couple questions here to wrap up. Uh, now, in addition to having NIH funding, you know, for well over 20 years, a great basic science and translational research lab, you were an integral part in getting the cardiothoracic surgical trials network going, which has just uh, done some phenomenal work over the years, practice changing clinical trials that are published in the New England Journal and JAMA on a regular basis. For our listeners, can you talk briefly about uh, the process that went into getting that network off the ground, bringing together so many different institutions in a way that, you know, all could work together and all could kind of benefit from leaning on each other in order to get some of these projects that take many, many years and a lot of funding completed efficiently. It's, it's certainly an interesting process. So the, the good news was the AATS recognized the issue and had developed a scientific committee and realized that there was re reduced funding for thoracic surgical investigators. The, uh, originally, at one time, most of the academic thoracic surgeons were trained at the NIH, but that portion of the NIH closed for a period of time, so, and there was nothing substituted. We went to speak to NHLBI. They realized the importance of this. They set up a meeting to talk about this and agreed to a clinical trials network in my other role at UVA, we wanted to be part of that. And I was lucky enough to, uh, to work with a uh, neurologist here who had a true expertise in clinical trials to uh, develop a, a program, and, or rather a, an application that fortunately looks like it's gonna be funded in its now third iteration. But the point is, is you know, the, the whole network is a political process and you have to, you have to be at the table. With, as always, you just can't expect people to come to you. So we were lucky enough and fortunate enough to work closely with NHLBI. They recognize the value and the network has worked. I have to say in the beginning, there were some tough times. It's very hard to develop really good surgical trials. It's very hard to enroll patients, but if you want to enroll patients, you've got to work on every one. The network really had some issues in the beginning until everyone understood that the, the importance that this was a priority. Enrolling patients was much more important than anything we could do, and we had to have studies that were doable, and we had to have studies that there was true equipoise, because if there's not equipoise, you're not gonna enroll patients. All right, Dr. Crone, uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, any final thoughts, uh, comments for the listeners on any good anecdotes, anything that we should know or, or would uh, enjoy hearing about looking back on such a prolific research career that you've had? I think the most important thing for people to understand is that is that if you don't want to do it, it's not going to happen. And and if thoracic surgeons stop doing research, stop doing investigation, we will basically start withering away. We will do the same old thing without looking at data and changing our practice. In each of the network trials, the result came out different than I would have predicted. And uh, I was speaking with Mike Mack the other day and realized we would never have predicted the answers, and that's why you do research. It's not easy, and it's simpler to say, well, I'm going to be a surgeon, just do my thing. But even if you want to just do your thing and be a surgeon, 
people want to know that you're writing about these subjects, that you have an interest. There's no one who comes to my office who hasn't Googled me to see what I've written about. And when I visit a Cleveland clinic who is as busy as anybody, they would state to you their main marketing are the manuscripts and investigations they do. It's part of what we are, our field developer caused it. And if we give it up, we've given up our soul. I'm absolutely convinced of that. All right, Dr. Crone, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, it's an absolute honor to get to work with you, and I know our listeners who have heard this podcast now will feel similar in that they've appreciated you taking the time to explain your thoughts behind a lot of these important questions and uh, allowing them to learn from the many years of experience you have both as, as a successful clinician and as a successful researcher. So thank you very much.